Looks like more of you joined us during our uh, worship service, so it's good to see everybody here uh, once again. Well, because we're on a short time span for our service, let's just get right into this. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 24 today. This is the third of what we're calling the Shepherd Psalms. We've talked about Psalm 22, 23 last week, and 24 today. Today's sermon is entitled, The Chief Shepherd, and you'll see why in just a few moments. But first, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 24. And when you have found that in your Bibles, would you please stand with me? And I'll read this psalm in its entirety. It's ten verses. All right, so Psalm 24, beginning at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has, he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to another or to an idol, nor sworn, sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. Amen. You may be seated. The chief shepherd. In these shepherd psalms, we see a few parallels to the New Testament. The New Testament reveals to us that Jesus is a shepherd. And in revealing that to us, in the New Testament, we find that there are three phases of his role as a shepherd. And these three phases are parallel to each of the psalms, 22, 23, and 24. For example, in the New Testament, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. That's Psalm 22. Psalm 22 teaches us that Jesus was crucified for us. He died on a cross for us, and then he was raised from the dead. Last week, we learned from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews says that Jesus is that great shepherd. And as the great shepherd, God has raised him from the dead. He is alive forevermore, and he is actively working in our lives today. And he will see us all through this life and into the next life to come. That is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And now we come to the third reference in the New Testament. And this comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, 
verse 4. My slides are stuck, so if you can fix that up there. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 says this. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Jesus, the chief shepherd, is coming back again. Amen? And soon, there is to be this sudden appearing of the Lord. And according to Peter, that appearance will be followed by crowns of glory. A glory that will never fade away. And that, my friends, brings us to Psalm 24. It's a poetic song. It's a picture of Jesus, the chief shepherd. The one who died for us, the one who was raised to life, the one who ascended to the throne of heaven, and one day, Jesus is coming back for us. Psalm 24 was written in the context of a historical event. You might remember the story of King David after conquering Jerusalem and then setting up that city as the center of the kingdom of Israel. He wanted more than anything else to bring the Ark of the Covenant up into the city of Jerusalem. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. You can read about that procession of bringing the ark into Jerusalem. How David danced mightily before the Lord. There was music. There were priests. There was the multitude of people celebrating and rejoicing. Up the hill of Jerusalem they went to bring the ark that throne of God, into the house that David built. It was called the holy place. And later, it would become the temple that Solomon would build. And on that day, they sang a song. And the words of Psalm 24 are the lyrics to that song they sang on that procession day. This psalm was sung as what is called Antiphony. An antiphony means that there are several groups of people singing, each one in turn. One group sings in answer to another group, and then another group will take a turn and sing certain words. In the original setting, some of the words that were sung were from the priests, some by the people, some by King David, and some by the gatekeeper waiting at the gate of Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit now, who inspired these words of Psalm 24, he lifts these words to majestic heights above the earth, ascending into heaven itself, where it is sung by a king greater than David. And it's also sung by the gatekeeper of a city greater than Jerusalem. And so with that, let's now take a closer look at this shepherd psalm and see what it teaches us as we consider its three movements. Number one, the earth. Number two, the hill. And number three, the king. 
So let's begin. Number one, the earth. This first movement is being sung by the priests. And what do they sing? In the first movement of the earth, they sing in chapter 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. The Lord is the creator and therefore he owns the creation. Amen? The earth belongs to him and all who dwell upon the earth belong to him. Now from man's point of view, this planet, Earth, is just a speck compared to all the expanse of the universe. Earth is considered by astronomers as simply the blue dot in the midst of billions of stars in a galaxy among billions of other galaxies in the cosmic universe. And if man could chart the entire universe, it would be easy to miss that little blue dot, that little planet, Earth, in the midst of trillions upon trillions of galaxies and stars and planets and other celestial bodies. But from God's point of view, from his point of view, this blue dot, this speck of water and dirt, this is the center of the universe in God's view. We are at the center of it all. Do you know, I, I love reading in the book of Genesis, the creation story, chapters one, and then flows into chapter two. You know, chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth right? And as you continue to read through chapter 1 and in chapter 2, it repeats that phrase, the heavens and the earth. God made the heavens and the earth over and over. And then you come to chapter 2, verse 4, and all of a sudden the focus changes. It says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. All of a sudden, in one verse, in one phrase, it's no longer the heavens and, oh, yeah, the earth too. No. Now it's the earth and the heavens, meaning earth now takes center stage. It's all that God cares about. And in that same verse, it's the very first time God is called the Lord. And remember that name, Lord. It speaks of a powerful God, and it also speaks of a personal God. And when God looked upon the earth, that name, Lord God, means he's ready to have a relationship. He's ready to reveal himself in an intimate, personal way. Not to all the starry universe, but to that one small blue planet called Earth. And he makes known his desire for relationship because it's on this Earth 
that God created man in his own image. This is also the place where Satan, the great tempter, came to entice man to rebel against their creator. And sin entered and corrupted this planet. How often does man look up into the blackness of space? He views, he studies, he calculates thousands and billions and trillions of galaxies and stars and planets, all moving at incredible, unbelievable velocities, bound together by the laws that were given to them from the very beginning when they were created. And God also looks. He looks down into the same blackness of space. His eyes are upon one seemingly insignificant blue dot. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Of all that the universe contains, it's the earth and those who dwell upon it that have captured the attention of the living God and his mind and his heart and his love. Amen. The earth. Number two, we see the hill. In the second movement, it's now the people asking the priests two questions and the priests give the response. So look at chapter 24, verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, the people want to know. Or who may stand in his holy place? The hill was Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem. The holy place was the Lord's sanctuary. Many were welcomed into the city of Jerusalem on this day, but only a few certain priests could actually enter into the holy place, into the holy sanctuary. And that only one time in the entire year could a priest enter inside. But this question that the people ask, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? The question transcends the city of Jerusalem and the question is above the earthly sanctuary of the Lord. It speaks of the heavenly city of God. And it speaks of the holy place in heaven. That is the very throne room of God Almighty. Think of that and ask, who may ascend that hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place. The priests respond. Verse 4. It's he who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. That's who may go up to the Lord and go into the sanctuary of our God. Now if you're not careful if you're not careful you would think 
that the song just continues. And they, and they just, they hear what the priests say, and the people just keep on walking. And then they continue to say, yes, we want to be blessed with the righteousness of God. Yes, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Yes, God, here we come. But if you're not careful, you're going to miss something very important. Do you think that people are saying, oh, clean hands, got it. Oh, a pure heart, we got that too. Never speak a lie, that's me. Who among them could say they fit that description? And so David has a way right now of getting all of us to stop for a moment and think about this. Because he adds this little word called Selah. You know what Selah means? It means let the music pause for a moment and think about what we just said. It's almost like he's saying, there, what do you think of that? And so let's do what David is saying. Let's stop for a moment and consider this. Who among us has clean hands? a pure heart, never lifting their soul up to an idol and never speaking in deceitfulness, never speaking in lies. Clean hands, your actions, have you ever sinned by doing something wrong? What about the pure heart? What about the thoughts of your heart? What about the motives behind what you do? Is there purity and integrity and honesty, and sincerity in every decision you make? What about lifting your soul up to an idol? This may not necessarily mean uh, an image of wood, stone, or gold. But we get into idol worship when we begin to idolize something or someone in life. And the sad thing is, sometimes the people we idolize is me, not me, the pastor, but you. We say, I'm the master of my life. I want what I want. And sometimes we say no to God because it's not what I want. That's making yourself the idol. Or you can idolize success, education, money. If only I could have it, then I would be happy. And you pursue those things with all your heart. Or, what about swearing deceitfully, speaking in deceit, speaking in lies? So let's wrap all that up. How about you? Have you ever sinned in your works? Have you ever sinned in your thoughts? Have you ever sinned in your words? Selah. You better think about that for a moment. And as we do, and even thinking about these people who originally sang those words, what are they thinking? Surely they know they are guilty of everything. They are guilty. And if even if they look to be righteous, even they know on the inside I am filled with wickedness. That's what Job said several weeks ago when we talked about Job. And so now what? 
What do we do now? There we stand in our guilt. Yes, it's, we understand that we're guilty. We understand that we have a need. That's just the first step though. How many people in this world can come to that conclusion? Yes, I'm guilty. Yes, I am in great need. But then what? What can be done about that guilt? What must we do? Several weeks ago, I got a call from my daughter, Rachel. And she was telling me about a very good friend of hers. These two young ladies have grown to a very special bond with each other. And this young girl named Andrea was going through some real difficult things. Whether it was in relationships, in her spiritual life, fear, having no peace in life. It even developed into negative thoughts, dangerous thoughts. And it also developed into nightmares. And so Rachel told her about Jesus. And Rachel just simply told her what Jesus meant to her and, and that Jesus can give peace in times of storm. And then Rachel called me one time on FaceTime on my phone and she said, Dad, can you speak to Andrea? I said, is she there? Yeah, okay. Hello, Andrea. You have no idea who I am, but it's nice to meet you. And so I spent a few moments just telling her about the peace of God that can only come through Jesus Christ. I explained the gospel to her, and I explained that Jesus can bring peace and healing and forgiveness into her life. And she allowed me to pray for her. And so I prayed for her that not only would she know Jesus, but that she would have peace in her heart. And after all that, we talked for a little bit more, and then that was it. The next night, she went to bed, woke up the next day and called Rachel, and she said, I had such a peaceful night of sleep last night. No nightmares, no fears, no worries. A few days after that, Rachel brought her to church. And she sat in a church with Rachel and, and heard a sermon message. And several days after that, Rachel and Andrea and another friend went to a coffee shop. And while they were there, the, the one friend saw somebody he knew from another church. And after they talked, that gentleman came to the table where it was Rachel, Andrea, and the other friend. And the man was just speaking so politely, saying, God bless you, God be with you. And he said, you know what? Before I leave, can I pray for you, for all of you? Is there anything any of you need that I can pray for? And Andrea, or, and Rachel and the one friend both looked at Andrea because she's the one in great need of prayer. And the man looked at her and he said, are you a Christian? And she said, no, but I want to be. And he said, do you want to pray right now with all of us here at this table and receive Jesus into your life? And she said, yes, I do. So all of them bowed their heads. They all prayed. And at that moment, Andrea committed her life to Jesus Christ. And right now today, it's been another week, she is experiencing joy in her life. She tells her friends, I'm a real Christian. Because she's learned that there are some who say I'm a Christian and don't seem to live that way. So she says, I am the real Christian. I have surrendered to Jesus Christ. Now, why do I tell that story? Because as days went by, God spoke into that girl's life. 
And she knew she was guilty. She knew she was in need. She knew she wanted joy. She knew she wanted peace. She just didn't know what to do about it. And praise God, he did not leave her in her guilt. He sent a stranger in a coffee shop to ask her, are you a Christian? And that led to this young lady giving her life to Jesus Christ. This word selah, it brings us to that place where we understand we all fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But now, now what? What do we do about it? Oh, in this great procession of Psalm 24, you can almost sense the silence. In fact, Romans teaches us that the whole world, the whole world, the earth is wrapped in silence. Every mouth is stopped because the world knows it is guilty. Now what? Well, now we go to movement number three, because now the king is going to speak. And let's see what the king says. Number three, the king. Let's look at Psalm 24, verse 7 and 8. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. And then somebody from the gate shouts out, Who is this king of glory? And it's answered, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Now we may well picture King David approaching the city gates of Jerusalem. The ark is behind him. The priests are there. The singing is going on. The music. He approaches the gate and he looks and he says, Now! Lift up those gates. And when he does, the gatekeeper sings out in response, requesting the identity of this king and the merits by which he is able to enter into the city. But surely, these lyrics take us beyond the procession into Jerusalem. For the doors of the city that are mentioned are called everlasting doors. And the king that enters in is called the king of glory, and he is called the Lord. So what then is the Holy Spirit showing us in these last few verses? Look at them. If you have a Bible with you, look at those again. You'll notice... Between the two verses, 7 and 8, and then the last two verses, 9 and 10. Between those two groups of verses, we ask the question, why is the command repeated to open the everlasting doors? And why does the gatekeeper ask the same exact question the first time and the second time? Who is? this king of glory. And when the answer is given to the gatekeeper, the answer is different the first time than the second time. So why two different answers? 
The first time, the answer is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. But the second time, the answer is the Lord of hosts. Why? It's because these verses are speaking about two different occasions. You see, the Lord Jesus came down into this silent blue planet and ruined by sin. He lived the life no one had ever lived before. He was perfect in all his ways from childhood to manhood. At the home, at school, at the synagogue, or working on the carpenter's bench. His words, his thoughts, his works were perfect, pure, and spotless. And so Satan waged a war against the Lord. Like when he tempted Jesus 40 days in the desert. He tempted Jesus to try to get him outside the will of the Father. But the Lord prevailed. Why? Because he was strong and mighty. He was mighty in battle. And so Satan worked in Judas to betray Jesus. He worked in the Jews and in the Romans to mock him, spit in his face, beat him, and crucify him. But the Lord endured it all. Why? Because he was the Lord strong and mighty. Mighty in battle. And then at the cross, I have to wonder if it finally occurred to Satan at the cross that dying on the cross was exactly why Jesus came. That dying on the cross would be what would redeem the people from their sin. And so Satan tempted the Lord on the cross. He tempted him to come down from the cross and to save himself from this death. But after Jesus cried, it is finished, he bowed his head and he gave his life on the cross. Everything was finished. He was the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Three days later, he rose from the dead. For 40 more days, he visited with his disciples and with others. And at the end of the 40 days, he took his disciples to the top of the Mount of Olives. And there they watched as he began to ascend into the sky. They watched until he was beyond the clouds and they could see him no more. What they couldn't see was that Jesus passed through the skies and he passed through the expanse of the universe and he went into heaven itself. And as he approached the gates of heaven, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall enter in. And then an angel's cry 
came from the gate, and it said, Who is this king of glory? And the Lord lifted his nail-pierced hands, and he said, The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Amen. From earth to heaven he went, and through the gates he ascended the hill of the great city of God. And without having to ask permission, he sat down upon the throne. And there he sits today. For the last 2,000 years, he's been looking down upon the earth. And he watches as souls are transformed in his name. Sins are cleansed. Hearts are purified. From the child, a little girl who sits on her mother's lap. And the mom tells her the story of Jesus. And in that little girl is faith that begins to arise. From that little girl to the old man who's dying in his bed. His whole life he rejected Christ. But in the last few moments of life, he surrendered to Jesus and was saved. And to the girl who is sitting in the middle of a coffee shop, minding her own business, and a stranger comes to her and says, are you a Christian? From the underground churches of Asia to the outdoor gospel crusades where we have seen thousands of people flooding the altars, weeping and repenting and receiving Christ, to Alpha Omega International, where lives have been saved and set free. Amen. And the Lord looks down upon all. That one child, that one old man, that multitude of people, this church or that church. And he smiles at every sinner who comes home. But soon, the father is going to look to his son and say, it's time. It is to go and get your church. And to the chief shepherd, he will say, go now and gather your flock. And so the apostle Paul says that in a day to come, the Lord will descend with a trumpet shout and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then all of us who are alive and remain, we shall be caught up together with them and will be gathered all together in the clouds and we shall see him face to face. And all this is going to happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye. And there the Lord will be. And he will gather all the host of his people together. The world will know that we're gone. And they'll look up, but they won't see. They won't see that the Lord has taken us beyond the clouds, through the skies, through the cosmic universe, and into heaven itself. All the countless hosts of us following the King of glory to the very gates of heaven. And when we all approach with our chief shepherd, he will look to those gates and he will say, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, 
and the King of glory shall come in. And once again, an angel will cry out, Who is this King of glory? And the Lord will turn to all the multitudes of those He has saved and redeemed. And with one thunderous voice, we shall shout, The Lord of hosts! He is the King of glory! Amen! And then through the gates, we will go, following the chief shepherd, down those golden streets of heaven, up the hill of the city of God. And as he sits on his throne once again, we will gather around him, every one of us. And then Peter says, we shall receive crowns of glory, a glory that will never fade away. And then in Revelation, John says, yes, but then we're going to take off those crowns and cast them before his feet the one who lives forever and ever. And we shall say, you are worthy. And you have redeemed us out of every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? And then David ends this psalm once again with this one word, Selah. There. Now what do you think of that? Amen. Musicians, would you come? We're going to sing a song together. And as we do, as the Holy Spirit tells us, Selah, I want you to consider right now, in your own self, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? Are my words trustworthy and sure? And I also want you to ask this second Selah and consider, the Lord is coming. Are we among the host that he will take with him to arrive at heaven's gates? With that, let's all sing this song together.